mountains are still being moved. Hello, and welcome to Raising the Standard with Pastor Owen Moody of the Richmond House of Prayer in Richmond, Kentucky. You're invited to join us each Monday, Wednesday, and Friday for an anointed full-length message from Pastor Moody. After the message, we'll be back to let you know how you can contact us. On this podcast, Pastor Moody brings us a message entitled, Unity. His scripture text will be taken from the book of Job, chapter 38, verses 1 through 7. Here now, Pastor Moody. Stand with me if you would this morning. I want to go to Job 38. I'm going to preach on unity. Power of unity in the body of Christ and in a nation. This is an unusual place where I'm reading from to preach on unity. The story of Job, of course, you know the story. He was a righteous man. God said he was perfect and upright. God had blessed him. Satan told me something I didn't know. God put a hedge about righteous people. I didn't know that until Satan said it in Job. And uh, then the Lord let the hedge down and Job afflicted him. Uh, Satan afflicted him and took everything but his life. Lost ten children in one day. Lost all of his means of prosperity. and Everything he had was gone. Even his health. Sitting on a pile of ashes covered in balls. His wife turned her back on him and said, you've, we, I know you've sinned. Curse God and die. He was alone. Then his three friends came and sat for seven days. Couldn't open their mouth. And when they did start to speak, instead of being comforters, they became his accusers. Then a young man came and joined himself. And he said, I'm so full of something. It was self-righteousness. I feel like I'm about to explode if I don't talk. And he let it on Job too. Who knows Job was in a bad place. But then, after they had finished finally, Job started making his complaint toward them and it ended up being a complaint toward God. He didn't fuss at God or about God. He just complained about his situation. Y'all ever done that? God, this is awful. I can't take this anymore. My finances, my family, my country, my church, my situation. He said a lady woke her husband up one Sunday morning and said, get up, get ready for church. He said, I don't want to go. She said, why not? He said, you can't make me go. He said, those people don't like me. They're mean to me. She said, you, he said, you can't give me any two good reasons why I should go. She said, well, reason number one, it's Sunday. Reason number two, you're the pastor. Sometimes life feels like that. Can I get a witness? So that's where Job was. And so after that, when Job got done complaining, God started talking to him. And that's where I want to start reading. Job 38 and verse 1. The Lord answered Job out of a whirlwind. Isn't that like God to show up in a whirlwind? <laughs> Something that's, you can't handle it. It's so tough. He's so awesome. So God answers him in a whirlwind and says, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? In other words, can I translate that? Job, you don't know what you're talking about. You're, you're trying to talk in this. You ain't even on my level. And then he said, gird up now your loins like a man. 
In other words, quit whining, for I will demand of you and answer me when I get done talking to you. He said, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if you have understanding. Who has laid the measures thereof, if you know? Or who has stretched a line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? I told him uh, this morning that Dylan told me yesterday that up there on the street that one guy walked up to him when he saw we were a church and wanted to argue with Dylan and tell him that the world was flat. And his, his reasoning was, he said, God said that heaven was his throne and the earth was his footstool, so the earth had to be flat. So Dylan answered him spiritually and said, well, a footstool can be round. <laughs> but scripturally, Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 20 says, he sits upon the circle of the earth. The earth is round. Columbus knew that and went to prove it. Can I get a witness? Because in his day, they thought people sailed to the end of the world and, end of the world and fell off. Well, let me go on. Columbus was a Christian. For those who didn't know it, read the Bible. Notice what verse 7 says. Here's my verse about unity. When the morning stars, the angels, sang together. Say that with me. Sang together. I noticed when we were singing, some of you weren't singing together. I'm not fussing. I'm just saying. They sang together. And what's this? All of the sons of God shouted <laughs> for joy. Hallelujah. See if I got any joy this morning. How many glad you got Jesus? You got joy. Can I hear you shout? Hallelujah. Glory. Got joy. Now, you need to know that there was a time when Jesus said this, I saw Satan fall like lightning. In Revelation chapter 12, it said when the great dragon fell out of heaven, his tail pulled out a third of the stars. A third of the angels fell with him. This was before that. This was in the beginning when all those morning stars, the angels sang together. And when it says the Son of God, is talking about all the created beings in heaven shouted for joy. Why? Because there was unity in heaven. And Satan, when he fell, you know where he fell? He fell in the earth. And he started trying to divide and conquer. He divided Adam and Eve. Pulled Eve aside and said, Eat of that tree of knowledge, good and evil, you won't surely die. God said you would, but you really won't. Then, a little while after, he caused Cain to rise up and kill Abel. The next thing you know, it gets so bad that those fallen angels take unto themselves the daughters of men, cohabitate with them, and giants are born. And Satan's trying to corrupt the righteous seed that God has said the Messiah would come, the deliverer would come from. And that's why we had the worldwide flood. Is anybody with me? See what division does? It destroys. But unity causes people to sing and shout together. I want to preach on unity. Father, thank you for the Word of God. Let your Holy Spirit speak to us and through us. Use me for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. I want to just 
preach about unity. I want to read Psalm 133. I'd be remiss not to read that, talking about unity. Does anybody know what it says? David, the king, wrote this words. It was a psalm of ascension, a song of degrees. When you read several of the psalms in the Bible, you'll see that title, a song of degrees. And it means a song of steps. And they were written and they sang them as they ascended up the steps into the temple. And so David wrote this song of degrees. And nobody knew any more about what it was like for a rival divisive spirit to be in the land than David. When God anointed David and appointed him, assigned him to be the great king of Israel, he for years had to run from Saul, who had fallen from grace, who had a demon spirit inside of him, who tried dozens of times to kill David. And David understood what division was about. His own son tried to take his throne and betray him. And so he wrote this psalm then and said, Behold how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Then verse number two, he says, It's like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even, the, uh, uh, even Aaron's beard, and went down to the skirts of the garment. And then it said, As the dew of Hermon, as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded a blessing. So when I started reading and thinking about unity, I, Job just, when I read this, it came to my mind, I, this verse of scripture, there was a time when the, when the stars sang together. There was a time when, uh, when the sons of God shouted together. And so God begins to challenge Job to answer him. And then in Job 38, and he actually, God talks for four chapters all the way through 41. And when he is done, he has convinced Job, this holy and righteous man, of his complete ignorance and inability to be able to question the great God of heaven. I think, you know, today when God hears educated, professing, brilliant people stand up and say there is no God, he must look at them and think, you idiot. Well, no, he actually said, you fool. He said, for the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. There is a God. The Bible said in Hebrews 11, by faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that things which are are not as they appear. Charles Darwin denied the existence of God and came up with a theory of evolution. Every day you can find people on Twitter and on the Facebook and on the internet trying to declare that, 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 that evolution is real and that creationism is, a, is not a science, but it's just a divisive word. But I want to tell you, by faith, we understand. I'm just glad you got some understanding that there really is a God. I won't talk about evolution. It's too crazy. I'm going to keep going. But... Uh, Job, all of a sudden, after God convinces him of this, listen to Job's response. Job 42 and verse 1, it said, Job answered the Lord and, and said, I know that you can do everything and that no thought can, can be withholding from you. Then he said, who is he that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered that I understood not. Let me, what's he saying? Who, who is it that can, that can even respond to you, God, without this kind of knowledge? I spoke things that I didn't even understand, things too wonderful for me. 
I knew not. Amen, which I knew not. Then Job says, here I beseech thee. I'm going to talk to you, God. I will speak. I will demand of you. It sounds like he's getting a little bold, doesn't it? Amen. And uh, I, I will declare, uh, uh, and I want you to declare unto me. Verse 5, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear. But now my eye, I've had some understanding. My eyes see you. And he said in verse 6, Wherefore I abhor myself. I'm nothing before God. I repent in dust and ashes. God says to Job in verse 7, Amen in our text. I read it. I want to say it again. There was a time when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. When David wrote this psalm of ascent, Psalm 133, he knew better than most what this rival spirit was like. In Acts chapter 4, we can see the results of of unity of the Spirit, starting in verse 32. This was after Peter and John had healed the lame man at the temple gate, and people had ran together. The Bible said, and the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. That, that's unity. Neither said any of them that the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. Hallelujah. And with, what's this? When there's unity, with great power, the apostles gave witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace, it says, was upon them all. Verse uh, 34 says, neither was there any of them that lacked. They had what they needed. I'm going to tell you about the spirit of revival. When there's unity in the body of Christ, things begin to happen that people that don't even believe in God can't argue with. I told this in the early service, Sister Moody, some of y'all know this, some of you don't, when she was an infant child, her eye was damaged. By the time we were married, her, and most of her life, she was legally blind and couldn't see any images or just shadows of light out of that eye. I used to tell her when I'd look into those beautiful blue eyes, I'd, when we were young and in love, and I'd look at those eyes, and her pupil looked like, in that one eye, like the, the dark part, the pupil ran out in to the blue where it was torn. You could see the scar on that eye. And one morning in one of our services, in the old carpet store, where when we first started, the Spirit of God came in. Revival hit. Twelve people got baptized in the Holy Ghost. People were healed. And Sister Moody was sitting on the front seat by one of the old mothers of the church who had gone, who's gone on to be with the Lord now. And all of a sudden, she was sitting there with her hand covering up what had been her good eye. And with a blind eye, she was looking at Sister Molly King's Bible, and she was reading the Word of God, I tell you, with a blind eye. And she started shouting. <laughs> That'll make you shout. Can you say amen? I can see. I can see. Word began to spread about that revival, about miracles that were happening. I was in the in the, still working in the factory, and that week I was in the plant, and on break I was sharing with some lost men about the miracle that God did in Sister Gail's eye. And I said this morning, I'll describe it like this, some old dead, dry, plucked up by the roots, backslid Christian, walked up and looked at me and said, that's not real. Said, that's of the devil. Said, you 
you Pentecostal people are crazy. Said, you all take that oil and you rub it on each other and you jabber and you carry on like something's happening and nothing's really happening. And uh, them other guys was looking at him like, what happened to this nut? He has, he's been dropped or something. He's fell on his head. And uh, he just kept on you know, saying that speaking in tongues was of the devil. And I, finally, you know, I, of course, I, I, I wanted to say something nice and not be mean. I said, well, I just need you all to understand something. The devil put her eye out, but God opened it. Can I get a witness? Hallelujah. And uh, you, I want you to understand that when God starts doing things because there's unity in the church, things begin to happen. Paul the Apostles talked to the Ephesian church about the power of unity. And and I want to say this. We're living in the most divided time that I've ever seen. Uh, and, And I could talk about the political climate, the red state, blue state, left, right, whatever, you know, all of that. And, 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 and don't misunderstand me. I stand on the right side of things, praise God. I stand on the biblical view of things. That's who I am. I don't vote for a Democrat or Republican per se. I vote for the man whose heart is closest to God, not the things he said and done. Now, they can all stand up and tell you they're a Christian, but look at their record. Hello, that's all I'm going to say about that. But we're in a divided time. What's troubled me the most is that we are living in a world with a divided church. Now, I just want to leave that there for a moment. I want to tell you that barriers, chains, the church has restrained each other more than anybody has because of unbelief, because of doubt, because of pride, because of uh, it's I'm right and you're wrong attitude, all kinds of things. And uh, Paul, he, he addressed that at the church at Ephesus. I want you to get the picture. I didn't say this in the first service, but I feel to say it now. Ephesus was the pinnacle of pagan religion in the world at that time. There was a temple built there to the goddess Diana that was one of the greatest edifices built upon planet earth. And their worship was done with with temple prostitutes. That's all I'm going to say about that to give you an idea of how vulgar and how ungodly it was. And, And Paul went to this place and preached the gospel and when he did, salvation started happening. Miracles started taking place. And, and revival started to shake that pagan world. Can somebody, they even brought him in one time, was going to kill him, but God delivered him. Hallelujah. Right out of the hand of the enemy. In Ephesians 4 and 1, he begins dressing, uh, addressing the idea of unity in spirit. And then at the end of that chapter, he ends up talking about grieving the spirit. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation, the word vocation, not vacation. Vocation is the job or the responsibility that God has called us to. How many knows that God's gave us a great commission, not a great suggestion? He's called us to go therefore and teach all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost, teaching them all things. Jesus said, whatsoever I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. Church was never supposed uh, meant to be a bless me social gathering, you know, where we all come in and, and we're happy with the padded pew and the air conditioning and, and everything. everybody just kind of does everything to suit me. That's never what church is supposed to be about. Church is supposed to be where you come in and get challenged, where you get made un-
gospel, where you have to die to the flesh. Can somebody say amen? And get filled with the Spirit and go out outside the walls, amen, to the street, amen, wherever it is, and take the gospel of Christ to your neighbor, to your family, to the uttermost parts of the world. And, and so Paul said, I want you to walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you've been called with all lowliness and meekness. Remember those words. I'll talk about them later. Lowliness and meekness with long-suffering, forbearing one another. Amen. Uh, that, that means putting up with each other. Hallelujah. Endeavoring, watch this, to keep the unity of the Spirit. Say that with me. Trying to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Then he said, there's one body, there's one Spirit, even as you are called, one hope of your calling. He goes on and said, there's one Lord. Well, you'd think there's 45 gods you know, in the Christian church in America, the way they all, the different views they have of God. But there's one Lord, one faith, and one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Then in verse number 30, Paul says, but watch this, grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you're sealed unto the day of redemption. How do you grieve the Spirit? Watch this, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor that, that's, you know, busy this evil speaking. Be put away from you with all malice. Look at verse 32. And be kind one to another. Hallelujah. Turn and look at somebody and say, I really want to be kind to you today. Praise God. Tell them, I'm just determined I'm going to be kind to you. You husbands might want to look at your wife and say, baby, I know I made you mad before we left the house today, but I really want you to be kind to me because I'm going to be kind to you. Amen. <laughs> Woo, I love it when you preach like this. Amen. But be kind one to another, tenderhearted. How many are tenderhearted? Listen, it's easy to get calloused and unforgiving and hold grudges and be bitter. Ready to, how many, how many know people that, I, I, I know people are just ready to give you a piece of their mind. And they've gave so many pieces of their mind, they ain't got none left. Hello. <laughs> Tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as Christ, God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. You understand, we're the church. Our goal is to have revival. Our goal is to be filled and fueled by the power of the Holy Spirit. Our goal is to be purpose-driven, amen, uh, to take the gospel to the world, to reach the lost. I, I read the book Rick Warren wrote one time entitled The Purpose-Driven Church, and uh, it kind of stirred me up. And I was in another church one time visiting, and, and I, I was preaching, and I mentioned Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Church. He wrote a sequel called The Purpose Driven Life. And one of my dear Pentecostal brothers came to me after church and said, I'll tell you right now, you blew it when you mentioned that book. I said, I did? He said, that ain't nothing but a bunch of psychology. And I thought, well, I know some people. <laughs> well, let me go on. <laughs> we are purpose driven. Are you with me? We should be driven with the idea of reaching the lost, winning the world, 
causing people to be brought together under one blood-stained banner, the name of Jesus. Can you say amen? That's who the church ought to be. Listen, if I try to have church in an atmosphere where the Holy Spirit is grieved, Listen to me. Paul said you got to have this unity. If you don't, all's left is grieving the Spirit. And if I try to have church in an atmosphere where the Holy Spirit is grieved, He will not work in the powerful manner that it was intended for Him to work or that He can work. Spurgeon said it like this. He said, Jesus is the face of God. The Holy Spirit is the voice of God. And the church is the body, the arms, the legs, the heart, the mouth, the reaching, the speaking. If we don't, if we're not what God wants us to be, we disrupt the whole plan. Can you say amen? Give God praise, if you would. I wrote this down. The unity of the Spirit is contrary to the human nature. I'm going to go as far as to say that the unity of the Spirit is a supernatural occurrence. I'm going to say you can't work it up. You can't do it. You just present yourself and God does it through you. Can you say amen? What does it take for brothers to dwell together in unity? David said, behold how good, how pleasant it, it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And he goes on and describes how precious it is, how powerful it is. I want to say this, we have got to get to the place where we're willing to lose face. That's number one step. Willing to lose face and prefer others before ourselves. What's it mean when you say lose face? To lose face means to do something, amen, without having to be seen uh, to, or to be right or to have it my way. To lose face means that I am taken out of the equation and Christ is put in my place. And you say amen. And the needs of others are, are exalted more than mine. To prefer others before ourselves. Listen, it means that at times we'll have to prefer our brothers in the body of Christ. And even in the world before ourselves. We'll have to lose sight of creature comforts to be able to make a difference. One of the, uh, Billy Graham, the great, great preacher, great evangelist of, of, uh, of the greatest of the, of the 20th century. Billy Graham, uh, one of his most successful crusades, which resulted in thousands uh, 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 coming to Christ, was in Great Britain. And the little known reason for his success there was another evangelist. A lot of people don't know this. But Billy Graham was going there to, to Great Britain, and, and uh, there was a, an evangelist there. His name was Tom Rees, R-E-E-S. And uh, he was, before Billy Graham arrived there, the greatest evangelist in that country and probably in all of Europe. He was a very powerful man, had had great success. But the story was that he used his influence among the church and among church leaders and his friends to make the way for Billy Graham to come to Great Britain. For Billy Graham to be successful, Tom Rees had to step aside. He had to diminish himself and promote this man. Somebody said at one time there was a, a, a city where they were wanting D.L. Moody to, to come and preach a revival. 
and uh, this this man was trying to organize it. He met with the, all the other clergy and everybody, and and one old uh, preacher who was kind of, I guess, for some reason, didn't like D.L. Moody or was still kind of hung up on himself. Said uh, he spoke up and said, "Well, do you think that D.L. Moody has a monopoly on the spirit?" And he said, "No." but I think the Spirit has a monopoly on him. Are you with me? We've got to get ourselves out of the way, can you say amen? And uh, John the Baptist, who, who was the forerunner of Christ, and, and uh, they came to him one day and said, John, the one you bore witness to down there at the Jordan, said he's over here in another place baptizing and said all people come to him. And John said, I told you. I told you I'm not the Messiah. When you asked me, said, I told you there's one coming after me. I'm not worthy to carry his shoes and I'm baptizing with water. But didn't I tell you? He'll baptize, boy, I feel the Lord right now all over me. He'll baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. And then John, he said this in John chapter three and verse number 30. He said, he must increase and I must decrease. We have got to get to the place, amen, where we're willing to lose face. It's not about me. Hallelujah. It's not, it's, it's not about me. I, I got invited to a meeting one time of another denomination. I was the only Pentecostal there, only preacher. They'd asked me to come and preach in this meeting, and, and I was Pentecostal, and they weren't, and I was the only one there. Some of them looked at me like I'd stole something. There was two or three preachers got up ahead of me, and everyone that got up would say something about, well, one of them said, well, that Pentecostal brother is coming up after a while. I need to say this. And he, 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 you know, he reassured them what, what his doctrine was. And I, I mean, time they got done, I sat there thinking, God, am I going to preach or are they going to have a lynching? What's going on here? And uh, I'm sitting there praying about it because I'm supposed to preach. Y'all know me. I take preaching seriously. I wasn't there to try to make a show. I was there to try to reach somebody for Christ. And it was an outside meeting. Hundreds and hundreds were there. And so they was under a tent, you know. And, and uh, so uh, I'm sitting there preaching. I said, Lord, what's, what's going to go on? And if I've ever heard God, this is sound crazy. Here's what he said. He said, when you get up to start to preach, he said, I'm going to anoint you greatly. And he said, for five minutes, he said, you're going to feel like somebody's got you around the neck trying to choke the life out of you. They're going to try to resist you. Some of them are. And I thought, wow, did I really hear that? I wanted to say the devil is a liar, but I knew it was God. And so I got up and I started preaching. And the Lord took me over to First John where he said, some have departed from the faith, having not the spirit. They've lost out. And I thought, this is going to go over like a lead balloon. They're going to lynch me, God. I can't I preach something else? He said, that's it. I started preaching about five minutes in. It's like some... Literally, I, I was I was smothering. I mean, I felt like every resistant, every power of hell was against me. And all of a sudden, I guess you could have set your watch by it. Like five minutes in, there's a little man down on the front row, a, a kid in his 20s. He jumped up in one of those folding chairs with both feet and started screaming. I mean, he started squalling. I thought, dear God, what's going on? And when he did, that place blew up. People started running. Are you hearing me? They started running. They started coming to the altars. The meeting was over. I, I mean to tell you the preaching part was done. 
they started coming to the altars. People were weeping because all of a sudden they realized our religion has cut us off from the Spirit of God. We've lost touch of the that brought us in. And it wasn't about talking in tongues and it wasn't about eternal security, unconditional or conditional. It was about the fact that God was wanting to come by a tent and have fellowship with a bunch of people that had cut him off and had shut him out. Hallelujah. That little boy came to me after it was over and said, my God, man, said I grew up, my, my Pentecostal grandmother raised me and drugged me to church and I was in church and said, I've seen them shout and roll up and down the aisles and under the pews. And I, he said, I grew up in that. And he said, right now I'm an assistant pastor at one of the biggest denominational churches in Tennessee. And he said, God woke me up to the reality that it wasn't about my position. It wasn't about my paycheck. It was about a relationship with him. Hallelujah. And he said, said, when I get home, I'm going to have my pastor call you and see if he'll let you come down and preach a revival in our church. I said, you tell him, I'll come. But I walked off and said, he ain't calling. And he never did. <laughs> he never did. I, there's division. We've got to be willing to lose face and let God be God. Can you say amen? The second thing, are you ready for this? We have to be willing to forgive and forget. Where there's unforgiveness, there cannot be unity. When you pray, Jesus said, pray like this, forgive us our trespasses and those that trespass against us. He went on and explained and said, if you forgive men, God will forgive you. But if you don't, he won't. Unforgiveness, amen, causes heaven to be shut up where your prayers are concerned. Unforgiveness destroys life. I've, I've heard people say, well, I forgive them, but I can't forget. And I said, some of you all, you're saved and you're full of the Spirit of God and, and you, you see people that have done you wrong and you still want to punch them in the face. <laughs> or don't do that, but you just won't talk to them. I confess my last, my sins in the last service. I said I was in the I was in the the store the other day and I had my mask on, and I saw some people who had done me a little wrong, and they had a mask on, and I said they won't recognize me. And God said, "But you recognized him." <laughs> and I thought, well, if I just go the other way. And the Lord, you know, I'm studying this message and I'm preparing it. And God said to me, really? Have you forgave? Are you willing to forget? Amen. A man called me to his deathbed one time. Had the family sin for me. When I came in, he said, I did you wrong. And I'm sorry. And I can't die with this. I need you to forgive me. And I thought, man, I, that's over. I forgave you years ago. I mean, I preached funerals for his family, been in church with him, hugged his neck, loved him. What else, I didn't know what else to do, but it was still bothering him. And the point was, I forgave, but he hadn't. And I just hugged him and prayed for him and said, I love you. And he went on to be with Jesus. Praise God. Forgiveness is, 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 a, is a real thing. R.T. Kendall uh, wrote a book entitled Total Forgiveness. 
And here's what he said. He said, by nature, I want to hold a grudge. By nature, am I talking to anybody today? By nature, I want to be able to point the finger. Say, you. He said, I want to point the finger. He said, but if I forgive you, I can't. I can't hold the grudge. I can't point the finger. If I don't forget it, it won't hurt you. It'll destroy me. Talking about unity. They, uh, Joseph, you know, his bro- y'all, y'all remember the story of Joseph, his brother threw him in a pit, sold him uh, to the Ishmaelites, went to Potiphar's house, from Potiphar's house to prison, from prison to the palace, became the second most powerful man in the world. Are you with me? And his brothers came later and were revealed to him and he recognized them. They didn't know who he was. Joseph forgave them. And there, when you read, and I want you to write this down, you need to read Genesis chapter 45, the first 15 verses. Because in those verses, you'll find five principles that Joseph exhibited of real forgiveness. Number one, he didn't want anybody to know what his brothers had done to him. In other words, he could have exposed them to the, to the leaders of Egypt and shamed them, but he loved them. He kept it quiet. Number two, he was a powerful man, but he didn't want his brothers to be afraid of him. I mean, he manipulated them a little bit till he got his daddy and his baby brother with him, but then he fed them and took care of them, housed them. Are you with me? He didn't want them to be afraid of him. He didn't want his brothers to be, number three, angry with themselves or each other for what they'd done. You remember there was some that were more culpable uh, in the crime than others were. There was one especially that tried to save him. And, and yet he didn't want them pointing fingers and saying, well, it was your fault. You No, he, he didn't want them to, to, to blame each other. Number four, he wanted them to save face. Remember what he said to them? I know you meant this for harm. But God sent me here. Maybe you've been done wrong because God, you, you've, been, you know, you've been mistreated because God's trying to get you someplace. I mean, in the early church, if it wasn't for persecution, Brother Brian Woolwine, they would have never used those Roman roads to take the gospel to the world. So all of a sudden, all things, say that with me, work together for good for those who love God. I'm in this, thank God, for the glory of God. Hallelujah. Come on, give him praise if you would. And the fifth principle was this. He wouldn't let them tell their father what they'd done to him. Jacob died pretty much oblivious to what really happened because Joseph loved his brothers enough to protect them from that. Amen. You see, Jacob, you got to understand this. We're talking about patriarchal process here. And when you read about Jacob's death in Genesis 48, I believe it is, that old man of God called every one of them in and spoke blessings and prophesied over every last one of them. If Joseph had told their father what that bunch really did to him, he may not have blessed them. Do you understand? How many knows that's forgiveness? Are you ready for this? Total forgiveness is when you are willing to protect and help the people that have wronged you. Mm, I'm talking about unity. 
And you keep doing it. I mean, 70 years later from the time that they threw him in the pit, when Joseph, when Jacob died, Joseph's brothers thought, boy, he'll get us now. You remember, y'all, have y'all read remember that in the Bible? They got scared and said, boy, we've had, we've had it now. But Joseph just called them together and just loved them anyway. He forgave them. Number three, the third thing is this. And finally, in Psalm 133, I've seen this. He said, unity's like the oil. And he said, it's like the oil that's poured over the head, even Aaron's head and beard, and over the skirts of the garment down to his feet. What you've got to understand is there's a, there's a sermon right here. The garments that Aaron wore were the robes of the high priest. When you study the word of God, This robe uh, was beautiful. It was ornate. What David was saying was that as precious as it it was, it was the anointing and the all that was more important. God wants us to get to the place that we're willing to make the anointing, the spirit, the move of God primary. It's the priority. It's not by might. It's not by power. It's by my spirit, says the Lord. Hallelujah. Somebody shout praise the Lord right there. Amen. Listen, Exodus 28 and 3. God says, Thou shalt speak unto all that are wise-hearted, whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom, that they will make Aaron's garments to consecrate him that he may minister unto me in the priest's office. I want you to just skip down to verse 5, if you would. Verse 5 said, They shall take gold and blue and purple, which were the colors of royalty, and scarlet and fine linen. And verse 6 said, And they shall make the ephod of gold and blue and purple and of scarlet and of fine twine linen and cunning work. But according to David, as beautiful as that robe was, it wasn't the robe that made him able to, Aaron to walk into the, tent, the tabernacle, into the presence of God, into the Holy of Holies. Are you hearing me? It wasn't the beautiful robe. It wasn't the appearance of religion. It was that oil that they poured over his head and that, that anointing oil with the spices. I liked what, uh, uh, what Maisel Ely said one time. He said, my God, you could smell him long before you could ever see him because that anointing had such a fragrance that it was attractive and when the man of God walked into the holy place, God came where he was because he didn't see flesh and he didn't see gold. He saw the anointing, the presence of God. Give him praise. I want you to stand with me as Nick Nick gets ready. All this division that's going on right now and the upheaval and the Black Lives Matter movement and all the other things that are happening. I listened to a speech this week that Dr. Martin Luther King made sometime after the demonstrations in the South and after uh, what happened in Selma. Alabama, what happened in Mississippi, those that were killed and the uh, Freedom Riders, that they were called, they were black and white, by the way. And uh, 
legislation had been passed, the Fair Housing Act, to ensure adequate housing for black people. Uh, legislation had been passed to assure them decent food to eat, to assure them the right to vote. Strides had been made. And Dr. King said, things are changing, but there's still much to be done. He, he had a sense of we're on track through peaceful means to bring about essential change. And uh, he quoted Job 38 and 7. And he said, when humanity, black and white, stand together as one in America, we may hear the sound of what God spoke to Job in that seventh verse. A time when the stars sing together and the sons of God, all of them, shout for joy. For joy. And uh, you see, blessing is commanded in Psalm 33 where there's unity. Hear me, church. Unity in the body of Christ, unity of the Spirit, is the thing that the devil fears the most. He fears, on the day of Pentecost, they were in one place with one accord. In Ephesians, when I read it to you, the Bible said there was this great move of God and great grace and power because people shared and they cared and they loved and they prayed. We're living in a time now when people fall out in church over silliness, get mad at each other, say I'm over silliness, and then say I'm a child of God. Something wrong with that. It's not the Bible I'm reading. Unity of the Spirit is not presented as an option. It's mandated by God Himself. There's one faith, one baptism, one Lord. There's one God. Hallelujah. A little Baptist friend of mine He's a, he's a geek. He's an internet computer geek. That's what we call him back then. The guy knew everything. Smart. He's smart. It was scary. And I was trying to learn how to use a computer. I mean, I finally figured out how to get it on. And, and you know, I wasn't that bad, but I was having trouble. And I had him here one day. My computer had some problems, and he was straightening it out. I'll never forget this. His father-in-law's a preacher good friend, Baptist preacher. And we were sitting there and he said, Pastor Moody, I want to ask you a question. I said, sure. He said, what kind of Bible do you preach out of? I said, well, I preach out of the King James Bible. I said, not that I'm critical of anybody else, but I just like it. I, that's what I grew up with. I said, I use other versions for reference and clarity sometimes but most of the time I'll, I'll preach out of King James and sometimes it's so that old English is so confusing I'll read it 
to the congregation out of the New King James or the, or the New Living Translation. I've had people backslide over it, but I, I did. And uh, he said, really? You use a King James Bible? I said, yeah. He said, well, how do you believe you get saved? I said, the only way you can get saved. I hope you believe it the same way. I said, we have to believe on Jesus, repent of our sins, and acknowledge that we're sinners, believe that He's the Son of God that died on a cross for us and took our sin and rose from the dead for our justification. And when we repent and confess that and believe it with our heart, Romans 10, 9, 10, said, you're saved. I chuckled at this. He said, wow, that's what we believe. He said, do you handle snakes? I said, sure, I got a box up front. You want to see? <laughs> I said, no, we don't handle snakes. I'm talking about division in the body of Christ. He said, well, why do you preach that you have to speak in tongues to be saved? I said, I don't. He said, I heard you did. I said, I don't believe that. I said, you can speak in tongues. I said, you can. There's a, sec- a separate second work of grace called the baptism and the Holy Spirit that you receive with the initial evidence of speaking in tongues. And I said, there's tongues that can be interpreted. He said, oh, well, he said, we, we believe that. I said, my goodness, we're not far from being brothers, are we? And he's a sweet little young man and we're friends. But people are divided over myth and innuendo. And there are things that Baptist people don't understand about me. And trust me, there's things I don't understand about them. But we've got one God, one faith, one baptism, one Lord. And when we all get to heaven, they'll all understand and we'll all be Pentecostals. somebody's going to run with that somebody will clip that out of Facebook and and crucify me not you but somebody else if we're going to survive in this divisive malicious mean terroristic hateful world we've got to stand as the body of Christ undivided filled with the Holy Ghost preaching a gospel that saves it's the same gospel for the black the white, the Asian, the Hispanic the Baptist, the Methodist the Presbyterian, the Episcopals the Pentecostals there's got to be something we can agree on and I've chosen to stand in Jesus. And set our hearts on you. Lord, come and live. We hope you enjoyed today's message and we'll tune in again next time. 
Raising the Standard is the media ministry of the Richmond House of Prayer in Richmond, Kentucky. For more information on the various outreaches and ministries of the Richmond House of Prayer, please visit our website at www.rhop.life. Thanks for listening.